Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Neil and Jordan podcast, a podcast where two comedians talk like experts on subjects they are not experts on. Uh, if you are watching this on my YouTube channel, make sure you subscribe to youtube.com slash Neil K, my main channel. Uh, all the podcasts will be posted on that channel by September 19th. So from September 19th, everything I post will be on my main channel. So make sure you are subscribed to that one. Uh, Jordan, how you doing? I'm good. I've got some housekeeping for once. Hey. Uh, first off, Zach, I know you're listening to this, but he was listening to our podcast about locus of control. And we were saying that you should just be affecting things on a micro level about your environment, uh, organizing, getting aware about like development proposals that are happening near your house. He came up with the idea of coming up with an app where you could just download it and it would just notify you when something in your area is happening. Now, that is an incredible idea. That's where you can actually affect change. That's really, really crucial. Uh, the other one that I have, and this is just a general question because I've just started reading into this, but you know that really hipstery talking point that you hear from a bunch of Netflix documentaries of Bees are dying around the world, except in Australia, and it's because of this mite that has plagued the Northern Hemisphere. Um, and, you know, if there was no bees, you'd have about four years to live and then the, the entire, all ecosystems would collapse. Um, that's a lie. It, it, it's getting fucked in Australia as well. We don't have the mite, but we have all of these pesticides that have been banned in the Northern Hemisphere that they still just pump out on crops here. And so that's just causing insect Armageddon, bees included. And so our bee populations, they don't even count them. That's the difference. The reason is the rest of the planet, they're freaking out about it. So they actually are counting bee populations and doing things like banning these pesticides, whereas we just pretend it's not happening. But there is a huge decline. So my question, especially because I didn't know this, but in Australia, we have 11 species of bees that don't sting you, don't have a stinger, uh, they're found mostly across the east coast in the northern part of Australia. I'm wondering, because I also heard that uh, I think it was the Vatican City that made an initiative of just like, put the bees at the top of your house, yes. And so they have bees, just at the, a lot of people have hives at the top of their houses. And apparently those are some of the healthiest bees on earth because bees actually uh, integrate with cityscapes a lot better than they do in regional areas because there's a huge variety of different flowers and plants in cityscapes because of gardens and they move around from them. And so they have different sources of nectar. And so they have uh, much richer diets than bees in rural regions. So it's a win-win because you're repopulating the planet of bees and you're making the bee populations healthier. Um, and I think it's an especially big win-win in Australia if you did this because there are species of bees that don't sting you. And so I'm wondering if anyone knows anything about this at all because I've just heard those things. Could you start encouraging people? If I started doing a couple of videos saying, can you just set up one of these hives in your house? First of all, it would be better for your garden anyway. It would be better for the region around you. But it would be a really, really good thing for the planet if you started populating cities with bees, particularly in Australia because we're blessed with ones that don't sting you. Well, so I'm just wondering, does anyone know anything about that? And if you do, contact me. 
Then the other thing that I've also got to say is I've been looking into Neil's thing about plants. He's so right. Such a good move. His point that plants uh, decrease <clears throat> the temperature in your house by about 10 degrees. I, I really think that everyone should be aiming for this in their house. One of those planted walls. They look amazing. And the whole thing purifies the air that you're breathing, uh, naturally de-stresses you, and is also great at moderating the temperature in your house. Mm. Golden cane palm. Anyway, that's all I've got to say is that they're housekeeping points. Huh? Golden cane palm. Uh, they sell them at Bunnings. They will, uh, yes, they'll do everything you just said, purify the air. They're great indoors and they look beautiful. Uh, they're a very well-renowned indoor plant. And the one, I've completely mind-blanked on the name of this plant, but it's very common. It's just this big, it's a big sort of stalk and then a lot of leaves kind of jutting out of it. I think it might even just be called a happy plant. Uh, that one is uh, really good at cooling the um, the house or the room. Uh, I just had to give mine away because they're toxic to cats. There's a lot of just make sure uh, if you do get house plants, be really wary of ones that are toxic to pets. A lot are. So make sure you research that. Uh, the common ones like aloe vera and snake plant are toxic to cats. I know that for sure. They're probably toxic to dogs as well. So do not uh, put them in, in, in your place if you do have pets or do what I do and hang them up so uh, your pets can't get to them. And the thing about bees, that's really interesting. I uh, would be happy to have a, if they're non-stinging though, I'm not, I'm not going to have any stinging bees on my balcony, but uh, if, if. No, that's a bit psycho, but you know what I think would work? Even if you're in control or if you could talk to this about people in strata, there's a lot of roof. First of all, I think that it should just be mandatory that if you are in an apartment block, there should be a garden at the top of your apartment block. That should just be unquestionable. That that should be something that should be mandated. But failing that, if you control one of those and no one's ever up on your rooftop, why not put a bunch of hives up there? Even if they are stinging ones, they'll just move around throughout this. Because something else that's happened as well, this is amazing. Like I'm really into this idea. I know that Gardening Australia never shuts up about it, but for instance... We installed, well, at Two's house, at Two's parents' house, we installed a fish pond out the front because they're Asian, so they believe in like the feng shui, and I just liked making fish ponds, so it was great. We did that, but we've seen constant streamlines of bees coming there for a drink, and then we went a couple of houses back, and somebody has put a beehive in their backyard, and I think that there's kind of a common misconception about it. If In your house, for instance, Neil, it would be terrifying because it would just be on that narrow balcony. But if you have a big backyard and you put it in the corner, they'll leave you alone. As long as you don't go anywhere near their hive, they're not going to sacrifice their lives for no reason. Mm. I think it's only if you're disturbing the hive that they actually sting you. Yeah, I agree. But anyway, I'm, I'm much more happy about this idea of um, native bees. But anyway. Definitely. Um, knowing that there are non-stinging bees, I think, would uh, would change a lot of people's minds. Go if, down a uh, tree. Having home hives. And if you can produce your home own Home hives. Honey, or the other thing is, that, huh? If you can produce your own honey as well, I'm sure there's a lot more 
work that needs to go into something like that. But uh, I'm a I'm a big fan of Manuka honey. Well, I'm trying plant based at the moment, except for the Manuka honey. So I'm not technically not even plant based there. But uh, I mean, it's it's honey, you know. It's not factory farmed. So, so close. Come on. You know, it's good mm-hmm. enough. Yeah. Shut up. Uh, good enough. But. Uh, I wonder. I wonder but the other if thing you is um, making your own honey. How hard that would be? No, I don't think it would be that hard. That's the other bonus of it. I look. I'm not sure. I'm not educated at all about this. This is something that I've just gained a lot of interest at the moment, which is a because the more I'm talking to ecologists, the more they're saying uh, you shouldn't even be worried about climate change. I think Elon Musk actually had. He was saying it as well that. As long as you stabilize the climate at about 500 parts per million, uh, you know, like there'll be changes, but they won't be catastrophic changes. And it's looking like that's pretty plausible. The thing that is very scary is declining insect populations. That's what you should be concerned about. And that's something that I think everyone can really affect. And the thing is like someone like you, for instance, that likes keeping plants those things kind of just back off on each other, having a worm farm and having bees or, or at the very least, maybe there's a way that you can attract other pollinating insects because it's not just bees, but I would really like anyone's knowledge about that pollination. Mm, I've got a lot of uh, spiders on my balcony, which I don't like. Um, in fact, I try to I spray them, <laughs> but if they're, if they've got a yeah, declining population, well, maybe I'll stop spraying them. But, uh, I don't like all the webs, but yeah, maybe that's. A well, bit, you know what? Weird, I think that the it? reason that you do have spiders there, huh? It's, isn't it weird how uh, people be like, "I'm, pla- you know, I don't think that uh, chickens and lambs and cows should die. Ew, yuck, a cockroach, kill it. It really is survival of the cutest. Let's be honest. Oh, yeah, for sure, definitely. No, that's that's <laughs> really goes without saying. That that's. That's the other thing. That's why uh, when it comes to insect Armageddon, it's not just bees. Insects are crucial, obviously, to the ecosystem, building block of it. Um, But you need a mascot. It's the same thing with koalas. People are always saying to me, like, it's this incredible edgy point that no one's ever thought of, that you're always talking about koalas, but there's all these other animals going extinct. You just like them because they're cute. Yeah, that's true, but that's because everybody else likes them because they're cute. You need a mascot, and that's what I think is great about the bee. Everyone likes bees, even though you get stung by them. They're probably one of the most aggressive psycho insects there are, but they're kind of nice to look at. Yeah, they're, they're, they're cute, the way they buzz around, whereas wasps, nah. For whatever no. reason, people aren't as fond of wasps. You know what? <laughs> Koalas are the most maladaptive. How did they even survive up to this this point? They sleep like 20 hours a day. They all have chlamydia. And I saw a koala fight on YouTube. My God, it was the saddest thing I've ever seen in my life. They, did, they just screeched really? at each other for a while. And then one of them basically did this little swipe. And then the other one, they make the weirdest noise. They make the, the strangest noise. You lose all, uh, you, you don't think they're as cute when you hear that noise that they make. And then one of them just kind of scurried up the tree. It was, it was just it was so funny. How did those animals survive? God, that you know, is pathetic. In an ecosystem with brown snakes and funnel webs and 
whatever the fuck else that can kill you. This cute little cuddly thing that sleeps 20 hours a day managed to survive. It's, it's, that's really like a that's, a, that's a, that's a Darwinian miracle. So you, you, you know what? We got to keep them alive. They're like the dodo bird. You know, we don't know how they survived this long, no. but for whatever reason they did. And we got to, we got to keep them alive. Man, I was just reading about that the other day because I was thinking the same thing. How is something that's – it's a teddy bear. It, it, yeah. There's very little difference between it, especially because they don't do anything. Um, how did they survive? It is because obviously there's just no real natural predators here apart from the odd sting, but they live in trees anyway. So most things that would have killed them would have been from venom. It was nothing like dogs or cats until recently. And they lived in gum forests that were – and a massive reason for that is because because you live in a gum forest, it's hard for carnivores to sustain themselves in an environment that's that dry and that devoid of nutrients. And they well, figured out that there's just enough nutrients in eucalypt leaves for them to eat and for them to stay alive if they spend – it's like a almost precise science of just like – four hours eating and 20 hours sleeping. That's why they have to sleep so much because there's nothing in a eucalypt leaf. Well, surely the, the like, indigenous population would have started hunting them, right? I mean, they're such easy targets. Oh, surely. So easy. But that's the whole thing. It's just, look, Australia, Australia's, I think, ideally should have a population of 10 million people. And I think... I think Aboriginals were always at the one to two million mark, weren't they? Across the nation. It's, it's fuck all people to maintain. And it's like Bill Burr's joke of like, United States would be great. There was just 30,000 people. You just hunt bald eagles all day. It wouldn't matter. I think that's, that's a good <laughs> I think point. that's what happened with, except for like obviously megafauna they wiped out because that was too easy and they didn't breed fast enough. So yeah. that all went. But anything that was smaller, it? like your kangaroos and your yeah, yeah, there were giant wombats and and what were the other ones? I know there were giant wombats. Imagine that <laughs> giant wombats. Wasn't there giant koalas? You know what? I think so. Yeah, there was giant kangaroos and there was marsupial lions. Whoa. Those all got wiped out. <laughs> the true apex predator, Homo sapien. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man, we oh, and, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, and huge tree kangaroos as well. <sighs> That's epic. That's so cool. Um, it is epic, isn't it? But uh, we're gonna st- we're gonna uh, focus this podcast on a subscriber topic actually so that's the it wasn't really banter but that's that's the banter portion done um this one comes from will will has a uh quite a bit he wants us to cover so we'll go in segments all righty and he's from where is he victoria okay G'day, gents. Thank you for your insightful and entertaining weekly content. I feel you're doing a great service for many people, even if this pod is essentially a very public therapy session for you two. <laughs> I think the <laughs> listeners of this know more about my personal life than some of my closest friends, especially sex sales, actually. Um, there's things I don't even tell my family and friends that I just, oh, for, for sure. whatever reason, I'm comfortable enough to talk about. 
to thousands of strangers on the internet. It's a it, what a weird world. All right. I've noticed after a while that I'm nearly a rural, tradey version of you guys. We have reasonably similar ideologies and attitudes towards life, but the differences in our environments mean you have a different different perspective and insight into certain ideas that I cannot ascertain from the demographic of people in my life. I'm sure you get sick of us saying, hey, you know how this Sydney suburb is a bit different to this Sydney suburb? (laughs) Thank Mm. you for providing that for me. I'm uber keen to transition into comedy one day. And I feel it could be a cool idea to use my current career, uh, open bracket race car building, uh, niche right, as the what? platform. That's cool. Although I definitely don't want to be anything. That's incredible. It's pretty. It's yeah. It's very niche. Uh, anything. I don't Isn't want to be it? anything like a car YouTuber. They get on my tits. I also think I've missed the boat majorly <laughs> with the YouTube game. And I know Jordan's going to say start making videos with a shitty two megapixel camera tomorrow anyway what i'd like to know from you guys is do you have a particular writing structure rules of thumb or try to include certain styles of a joke when you go about writing a sketch slash video as a side note i'm intrigued by the structure of top gear as it was written as a comedy show and actually scripted in many parts but the topic was cars rather than being an out and out car show like the others are but it also had a very Hmm. sincere and relatable side which is in part why i think it was so successful on another note, I've mm, noticed a mm. parallel between Jordan Jordan's interest in politics linked to his research into the Roman Empire and my love for car racing cars linked to my oddly expansive and near-on useless knowledge of motorsport history. Could you please discuss your thoughts on how learning about the nuances, events, and ideas of these parts of history can enhance your own body of work and help you understand your own field of knowledge better? Sorry for the huge, huge chunk of text. And I know I'm asking a lot. So as an incentive, if you do a thorough job, I'll happily donate another $100 to Rare Cancers Australia, despite my meager income. Well, you don't have to do that, but that's amazing. Also, I'm a Wayne Dyer Patreon for Jordan. Uh, so you ought to be kissing my dick, really. That a boy. Massive thank you to yes, both I of should. you. I don't have any socials worth mentioning, but I'm happy for you to mention my name. Will, alrighty. <laughs> Thank you for that, Will. <laughs> Will. What's a Will Dyer What? Wait. What was it? Wayne Dyer What does that entail? Uh, on my self-help channel, you get extra videos if you go into my Patreon, where I give you the primo ideas that I've been meditating on that week about self-help. Oh, hey. And I do actually think it's worth the money because. As everybody else says on their Patreon, for the same price as a cup of coffee, I am giving you life-changing ideas. I really am. So I think it is worth the money. I'm I'm like, you know, again, some of these ideas I spent $10,000 in seminars trying to get. Um, Wow. But Uh, thank you so much for that, Will. It really sounds like you're you're a standout guy. And I'm actually really impressed. In fact, I've got to say, Neil... I'm very impressed by the people that like both of us enough. They, they seem to be really, in general, this is my favorite audience. It's a good audience. This Thanks, crossover guys. audience, everybody here is a very thoughtful, considerate one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the Venn diagram of um, the two parts of our audience that overlap. And it's so weird because 
it's a podcast between easily the two smuggest YouTubers in Australia. And yeah, everybody that listens to it is nice. <laughs> huh? You're the, you're the smuggest. Yeah, I, I'll take that title. No, I, I'm, yeah, all right. Actually, you know what? Uh, what's the right word? It's not arrogant. It's not, uh, condescending. That's it. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't even know where to go with that. It was such a long question. Where do you start? It was great, wasn't it? Um, okay. Cool idea to use my current career. So he, he builds race cars, and he wants to use that right. as a platform into comedy. Now, any sort of niche you can have with comedy or just making internet videos in general, that's you're already winning. That's perfect yeah. for YouTube. The more niche, the better. And mm. he's asking about how we write our skits and things, but um, I want to sort of relate that to what he asked about you reading up on the Roman Empire and history. You get to a point uh, with whatever craft that you're um, trying to perfect where you've learned not only the basics, but you could say even the like advanced practices that you need to learn. And then it's about redefining the craft itself or, or just sort of taking uh, it into a new direction with your own spin. And any extra reading or any extra knowledge will equip you brilliantly for being able to do that. So when you learn about whatever other discipline or craft or art form, doesn't even have to be art, whatever you're learning, you will be able to pick up on on things and utilize that in your comedy or your um, vlogging or you, YouTubing or whatever it is. You know, I'm I've just bought uh, this. There's this DK series of um, I think it's just called Big Ideas, and they've sort of summarized the, the sort of main academic disciplines into about 350 pages worth of uh, hardcover and I'm trying to just study all of them. I can tell you for a fact, studying something like just just broad history or psychology dramatically improves your comedy because now I suddenly have all this extra knowledge that other people can pick up on and say, wow, how how does he even know that? That's crazy. But it also just gives you an insight into different ways of thinking. And then, you know, your bra- our brains, we've focused on comedy for so long that they're already formulated in a way that, you know, it's molded around creating comedy. But we just add those extra layers. It's not going to radically transform the way we um, write jokes or how we structure what we do, but it just gives you that extra, that extra notch in, in your belt. And... You know, I can't recommend just reading widely enough. Whatever it is you do, whatever it is you do, just the more diverse your palette of reading material, the better it'll equip you for for being innovative. Mm. Because 
One of the bare bones elements of comedy is two ideas combining. And so the broader your ideas are, the more you can gather. It just extends. I guess it's the same as a chef having 300 spices to work with as opposed to 30. That's what's happening when you're getting a broad base of knowledge. Not that I can talk because I think that I have extremely <laughs> obsessive knowledge about a few subjects and nothing else. <laughs> but I do really see the merit in what Neil's saying, especially if you want to be in one of those British quiz shows. Every time I look at those guys and think, God damn, they're witty. I think there's one thing that all of the true titans of that genre have, and that is that they're all clearly classically trained i.e they are well read mm. well read equals a funny person but i think that also the other element that really helps with comedy is passion which is why you're going down the right path and it's just pretty much reiterating what neil's saying but with the emphasis on the word being whatever you're passionate about is what you should talk about because people will want to go on that journey with you because you want to go on that journey. I think that one of the big mistakes that I made in my career uh, was talking about things that I'm not passionate about. And I think that I have just from years, and that is one of my passions, is just kind of studying humor theory. I think because of that, I was able to keep it entertaining enough that I could talk about things that I don't really give a fuck about. But you can see it in the views. You can see it in the reception from the audience because on a subconscious level, they can tell you don't actually care about this stuff. You know, something like talking about Trisha Paytas. That's always the big in-joke with us is like the, the video that you did about Trisha Paytas. It was like so obviously trying to just go along with the coattails of what everyone else was talking about in YouTube. And rightfully, I was punished for it. I think that in Australia especially, because we don't have that massive ecosystem that the US has, you really have to forge a path of talking about the things that you actually care about. So if you care about building cars, which is, you know, a very fortunate field to be passionate about, it's not the same as beekeeping, is it? A lot of people care about building cars. You should go down that avenue. And you're right, Top Gear, most successful show of all time. Nothing comes close. And he's right. It was because it was the infusion of humor with it. I think the thing about humor is that, and this is why it kind of works, they, they work so well off of one another when you're talking about something else and then adding humor into it. If you can do it well, or if you can do it competently enough that it's not jarringly cringy, and I think the audience is very forgiving about that, uh, Neil, I think you'd admit this as well, that comedy is a very imprecise science. And when people always say to me, bro, that joke was cringe, you're, you're absolutely right. It probably was. But that's because comedy is sort of the birth of a new idea. You're throwing a bunch of new ideas at a wall. Oh, and yeah. and we're gonna I miss. think, and I talk about this on the self-help channel, huh? Yeah, we're just throwing darts aimlessly at the wall, trying to hit the bullseye. But we don't know where that Ooh. bullseye is. No. And I liken it a lot to being a professional baseball player because I read that the difference between somebody who doesn't know anything about baseball and somebody who is a world-class baseball player 
is actually quite minute in terms of their strike rate. I think that the average person can probably hit about one out of 10 balls. Now, obviously, there's like variations in how elite the people are at pitching, but like a really fucking world-class batsman or whatever they call them there probably hits about four in 10. Wow. And I think that that's the same when it comes to comedians. When you're looking at it, the really world-class comedians, I really don't think that many of their jokes are really like home run, knock it out of the park stuff. A lot of their jokes are just acceptable enough to keep the ball going until you can get to the home run. So that's something that I would say about humor, I think, is just you, you have to exercise the muscle. And as a result of that, you kind of just get a sixth sense for not so much, is this going to be hilarious? I think people normally when they come up with hilarious things that get me on the side, usually they're not thinking about jokes. They kind of just have a funny personality and their brain just goes to different places. And that's what I find funny because I can't really do that. But I think that what both Neil and I have gotten just from doing this job for so long is after a while when you write something down, you start developing an instinct for that's going to work. Like that's passable. It's mm. not that it's going to be amazing. It's just that like it has the right elements to it. That stays. It becomes rote, doesn't it? Because you um, train yourself to write in a certain form. And I write differently for stand-up than I do for, say, YouTube or uh, even TikTok. Uh, right now, TikTok is actually the rawest form of those ideas. Uh, I'll simply just hash out an idea through a selfie video on TikTok right now. And with YouTube, what I'm trying to do with some of these sketches, I mean, what I was doing with the sketches last year is just, I was doing quite a few political sketches where I would, I guess, personify various ideologies and think about, well, how would it be if they were actually just a couple? And I'm also very interested with all the reading I've done on relationships and my now, you know, rudimentary knowledge on relationship psychology and therapy. Well, I thought, well, this is just where my mind went. I have a few sketches out there of say, you know, if a, a right-wing populist and a conservative went to couples therapy, which is just clearly where my mind would go at that time. But no one else is doing that because mm. they're not reading simultaneously. They're not, you know, listening to political YouTubers and then also reading about couples therapy. I mean, again, you can't really... Um, you just can't recommend a ride, a, sorry, a wide variety of reading enough for someone who has goals like you do. And where humor can be so effective when it's infused with something that's, say, semi-educational or just informative, it makes it digestible. It makes it accessible and digestible. People don't feel like they're being lectured to when they're laughing. People don't feel like they're being forced to think when they're laughing. Uh, I think some of the best ideas can be incepted into people subversively through comedy because they're not on guard. They realize that it's not an argument. Not, someone's not trying to lecture to them. You, know, you may be uh, teaching a tutorial on how to build a race car, 
but if you just make it jokes about race cars while you're simultaneously doing that tutorial, it suddenly becomes more engaging because it's perceived to be something humorous and something funny, something carefree, something that people don't have to think about. You're also like, you know what jokes do? Especially when you set up that there's a joke, and this is something that I read in a political satire book years ago, which is that normally politics is an extremely boring, dry subject, and then all of a sudden you had shows like Jon Stewart that came out of nowhere and were some of the highest-rated daily shows in America. Mm. And it is because you are training your audience you can just this piece of information. They're also the most well-informed, but it's saying you can just this piece of information, you get this reward. It's kind of rat stuff. It's like you do this little trick, you get a treat. That's what's happening when you're breaking things down with humor. That's why when you look at uh, wow. videos that are comical, you will look at the retention rate and it'll be a lot higher than videos that are just informational because, and also your brain is not getting any rewards at all. So it's not retaining the information. There's not a thing like the other thing is that it kind of turns the information into a puzzle. Like it naturally elicits curiosity because you're like, really what's happening in those videos is that piece of information is sort of the setup line to the joke. So you have to process that piece of information. It's like the a man walks into a bar part of the joke. So for you to get the payoff at the end, you have to understand the educational bit. It's a beautiful coupling. Education and comedy is a beautiful coupling. So if you're doing that, that's great. Damn, I um, never really sort of put that together where it's uh, rats being trained to learn something. Through the dopamine hit of the it's laughter true, that right? comes after the educational hit. But that's very true. Yeah. So it's behavioral therapy in many ways. Damn. And then there's something else that I've been thinking about a lot recently. And actually, Neil, you've just said something before that I was thinking about when I watched a video and I watched it the whole way through, it's gone mega viral and it deserves to. I think it's from some Kiwi or it could be Aussie, but he's recreated the Simpsons hit and run game from 2004. It's mm. like a staple of our generation. It's kind of just oh, a cheap brilliant Grand game. Theft Auto. Brilliant game. Brilliant game. He's recreated that almost from scratch. And he's done a video tutorial of how he recreated the Simpsons hit and run game. And now I don't know anything about game design at all. When he was talking about it, it most of it just went completely over my head. But I stayed throughout the whole 20 minutes because what he was saying in between was funny enough for me to get to the next stage. Now, again... Mm. It wasn't that all of them were knock out of the park hilarious, but they were good enough. They weren't jokes where you just thought, no, nah, I'm turning this off. It's something actually that one of my ex-editors said about radio hosts as well, that if you are on radio and you aren't obnoxious, you're better than 80% of the radio hosts. It's actually just getting to the stage, and Steve Martin says the same thing, it's getting to the stage where everything you say is decent. That's where true skill is, that you can come out on night, night after night, you'll have nights that you yourself know are bad, mm. but the audience will walk out and say, that was good. 
Yeah. It's not like anyone can have the night where they just fluke it and they have a brilliant night. And that's what everyone talks about when they first start out in stand-up, that the first few times that they did it, maybe they did really well, or maybe the first time they did really well, and then the next few times they bombed. Mm. That's somebody that doesn't know what they're doing on stage. Leveling out the troughs. Yeah, yeah, being consistent. Leveling out the trough. Definitely. Um, so let's go back to the part where he asked, do you have a particular writing structure, rules of thumb, or try to include certain styles of joke when you go about writing a sketch slash video? Uh, I know I change my style of writing if I'm doing a character comedy video or if I'm making some sort of commentary in the video. So there's, there's, there's a few sort of notable styles with the content I produce. I mean, the one I'm still probably most well-known for was the, those sort of quick-cut impressions uh, from way back in the day that I'll still uh, occasionally dabble in. And that is all about attention-grabbing, uh, but, you know, contrasting various caricatures or sort of hyperbolic representations of a certain ideology or a cultural ethos, and then just comparing them against each other and just packing it all in into this just sort of aggressive but also hilarious, bizarre and absurd concoction of, uh, of comedy. But also, I wouldn't say that's informative, that style, but it's, uh, it's I'm trying to say something as well. I'm not just trying to make people laugh. Uh, but then if I'm doing, say, a Charles D video, it's, well, that's all about just emulating the character as much as I can. So I won't write lines to try and be funny or structure jokes there necessarily. I'll just sort of put myself in the perspective of this character and that character itself is 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 the joke. You know, he is a caricature of... Uh, digital entrepreneur slash uh, online hustlers. So I find all their flaws and I just totally exaggerate them. That's essentially what satire is. And I'm, those are, well, when I do short films, which I haven't done for a while, now that's very different. That's all in the script. That every line of dialogue has to mean something to me. So those are the ones that I'm the most meticulous about. And I, you know, what am I, I really look at what am I trying to say with this line of dialogue? Often the characters in those films are indicative of a certain ideology as well. So I've sort of personified ideologies. And then I think about if that ideology was a person, what would they be saying in this instance? How would they interact with this other person who is an ideology? And I'm really thinking about, you know, the characteristics of that ideology and how that would then conceptualize as personal dialogue. Uh, so that is how I'd structure and, and, and write most of my um, sketches and videos. Jordan, what about you? Because I know you've got different styles there. There's the uh, style where you're just commentating, uh, but then there's the sketch-based style. So how does your process change? And I know you also have writers and people who uh, help write. 
so how what's the variety in your process of uh, formulating the videos i'll tell you what i think we can simplify all of it down to this that there's a bunch of techniques that are put above this base and i think that this is the foundation of all comedy and tragedy it all comes from this one birthplace which is insight if you are not saying something that isn't insightful in some way it's boring if you are giving people something that they've heard before they're not getting the same reward you want to be making that connection in people's minds where it's either i've subconsciously thought about this and you've put it in a way that i can recognize i think that's mm. gold comedy right there when you can point out something that's look to, to give you like a really really basic example jerry seinfeld jerry seinfeld a lot of the reasons that he took comedy by storm one of them was that he was just so presentable because he was handsome and he was doing um you know g-rated stuff and that's why he was just able to reach those astronomical heights that he did it was because the things that he was saying weren't smutty uh but another element of it was that pretty much his entire shtick was have you ever noticed i think that that is something that and that's what neil's talking about there when he's talking about even in his australia to two ministries charles d like it's it's the same thing that's happening there but you're getting different techniques and styles built above it but we're all just really describing an event or a a type of person the way to make those uh insightful observations funny is often an extra layer there, which is making an analogy or a comparison or involving a character because there are plenty of um, aspiring comedians who make brilliant observations and they're funny in theory. You know what I mean? Like the idea of that observation is funny, but the execution isn't funny. And likewise, there are, there are, there, there's a plethora of comedians that, uh, are great joke writers, but aren't particularly insightful. And 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 you really hit the jackpot when you have someone who is both <clears throat> insightful and hilarious. So I, Daniel, who mm. I do improv with, has uh, started writing comedy in the last couple of months, and he has some brilliant observations. But sometimes it's about just adding that extra. It can be as simple as that extra. Here's my observation. It's like when blah, 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 blah. Because if you just make the observation, it's often not that funny. No. Well, what's happening there as well is because I do really like that description of humor of two ideas coming together in a, in a way that in some way makes some kind of logical sense. Yes. Not that it makes, you know, factual scientific logical sense the example that i've given on this podcast before is in that 20s film where two people are chasing charlie two cops are chasing charlie chaplin the elevator hits the two cops the elevator comes back up and outrun two midgets dressed in cop suits so like <laughs> the logic there 
Don't you think it's a good joke? <laughs> I actually, when I heard that, I was like, that works. That really works. But it's like, you know. I like that. If an elevator hit you, obviously you'd be fucking dead. You know, like that comes up. Yes. But it still makes logical sense that if an elevator hit you, you'd be smooshed down to a smaller size and you'd walk out, you know, midgety. Yes. <laughs> like you can see where the logic went. It's a combination of two ideas. I think that that's what he's talking about there as well. Like it's 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 connecting it to something else. That you're, you're connecting the insight to something. But again, I that goes into Freud's theory of humor, which is that it's an economy of expenditure of thought. That you've, I think, wit really is just condensing an observation down to as few words as possible. Mm. Mm. And also, like, you know, creating some kind of insight. So, for instance, like something that's an Oscar Wilde quip, like everything in moderation, including moderation. He's really condensed an idea there. He's presented it in a way that's surprising and insightful. Wow. I've that's what's that. happening that's there. That's great. That's a... That's a great quote because it makes you think, doesn't it? He, he was the master at it. He really was. I mean, you could do a lot worse than to sit there and read a bunch of Oscar Wilde quotes. You can't he, be the is... entitled centrist all the time, right? Sorry, the enlightened, not the entitled. Yeah. Well, uh, same thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or like, you know, another one of his witty moments was uh, – him going to the customs in the US and they said, do you have anything to declare? And he said, I have nothing to declare except my genius. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. It's a witty idea, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's just building off of, you know what he's saying. Mm Mm-hmm. He's giving an answer that is unexpected but still makes sense. Yeah. That's so weird. The the joke in that instance comes from, you know, misusing the, the word declare and using it in a different in its different meaning. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And also there's an element of it as well of uh I think and this is something that Trump does very well. Uh, it's something that like, you know, when, when the, when the, uh, this is more stand up as opposed to YouTube, but it still makes sense. Trump creates such an electric atmosphere that when you're at his rallies, he's kind of just feeding off the crowd's energy and so funny things just naturally come to light because he's just building on that. That vibe is already there and he's just adding fuel to the fire. I think that that's something else that really helps a lot when you're thinking about writing humor is you want to be, you want to try and generate that atmosphere when you're writing. And like anytime that you're ever having a writer's block, I really do subscribe to that idea of, 
just start thinking, uh, like just, just sit back and just think about a moment in your life that made you cry with laughter for a few minutes or even just a minute and then open your eyes again and you'll be in that state. And then you write again and then things become easy because you realize that, especially when you're doing stand-up, this is something that you realize a lot is that if the audience isn't in a good mood, it doesn't matter how good your show is, it's going to bomb. Conversely, Trump is just doing everything on the fly and he's got the audience in hysterics and it's because they're in a really, really good mood. Oh, yeah, they love him. I guess, well, what was I going to say? Well, the, 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 yeah, the, I mean, the, I'm trying to think if there's any comparison to the energy of an online audience or just a sort of a, an, an audience that a, is going to watch a sketch or a video. How can you recreate that same atmosphere? I think you can still be charismatic. Dude, you know what? Like a massive reason why Australia in two minutes did so well, apart from the fact that it was uh, – there was nothing else like it at the time in Australia – it was definitely that. Like, obviously, it had the points that we were just talking about of just it was observation. But another big thing about it was that it was energetic for the entire two minutes. And that's another reason why TikTok does so well because yeah. you've got that 15 seconds and you've got that little jolt of here you go. And then, you know, you, you consume that and then you keep going down that little spiral. Oh, de- definitely. Which is something else that I've got to say that I've been getting into a lot. I don't know if you're into this, Neil. I think I've talked about it briefly before, but you helped me out with this from a few weeks ago of kind of like combining things together. I've reduced everything that I do now. Like even working out, I've reduced to those 10-minute blocks, but I've reduced reading to those 10-minute blocks. I've reduced writing to little 15-minute blocks. I think that that helps a lot as well. Like if if you're just constantly moving your mind around, just like what you were saying uh, about having the reason why you want to be widely read is so that you have all of those ideas at your disposal because you're making your brain work in different ways. You're keeping it alert. Yeah, yeah, creating new neural pathways or... What is it? By a certain age, I think by your mid-twenties. No, you can still restructure certain neural pathways. It just becomes a lot harder or something. There's some sort of uh, ceiling to how malleable your brain is after a certain age. Mm. Uh, but... Mm. Yeah. Yeah, look, man, I, I agree with everything you say. Um, the energy, but also the sort of... alien nature of that video in particular i think when i say alien i mean it's just it's so they they were very uh, you know astute cultural observations but they were presented in such a bizarre and you know egregious 
wouldn't even call it energetic, aggressive way that there was a combination of this is so true plus what the hell is this? And I think that worked. That, well, yeah, that it's, combination. It's, it's the key component. If you want to even break it down further, and actually this goes into the thing that I thought we could kill two birds with one stone about storytelling. But... Yeah, go for it. And actually, you know what? It's something that I've noticed when talking to you over long periods of time. When you talk, I listen to you more than I would listen to other people. And again, it is something that happens with stand-up comedy because a lot of stand-up comedy, same thing that we're talking about there with the payoff rewards mechanism that's happening when you're giving people information and then you're giving them the punchline as a little reward for consuming that information. I think that you naturally understand, and it's someone, I think that both of us look up to this guy, actually, Ben Elwood. When I was starting out and looking at comedians, I thought, wow, Ben Elwood is good on stage. And he's an underground comic. I think he's known as the king of the underground in the Sydney scene. And it is very unfortunate because I really do think that that man deserves to be a household name. He's good at his craft. And I remember asking him once, why are you so good on stage? And his response was that I used to be a dog trainer. And so I became very good at holding attention because I can see, just like with human beings, the same thing, and mammals, exactly the same, but you know when a dog is losing attention and to make it obedient and understand a trick, you have to keep its attention. Interesting. So that's why he became so good on stage. Interesting. Huh? Very interesting. Well, I think that's the same thing. It's just because you're a comedian, you've naturally picked up the skill of grabbing attention and you just have to think about all the time subconsciously is this holding someone's attention? That's what happened with Australia in two minutes. It was two minutes of grabbing people's attention. And it was because of all those elements that we were talking about before. But what I thought, this we're just going to be exploring this now because I've got nowhere really to go with this. And if anybody has any recommendations on books that we should be reading in this field, this is something that has been... Look, again, I would have to be better than the average person at doing it, but I haven't consciously thought about this before, and it really scares me how many things you just don't consciously think about that are so intricate to your profession. I'm talking yours and mine now, Neil, but I'm also talking about I think this is a building block of virtually anyone in today's society, at least, unless you have really menial jobs. I think storytelling is one of the most crucial skills there are. I've heard a lot of people say that before. It never really clicked with me. Mm. But I heard a stat and I'm going to be butchering it. And I don't, these aren't the exact figures, but it's somewhere in the ballpark. Just go with it. There was an economist that was trying to figure out the economic utility of storytelling and he bought a bunch, let's just say he bought a hundred items for a dollar. He bought a hundred items for a dollar and then he went on Fiverr or something like that 
and said to those pe- said to a bunch of people that described themselves as storytellers, write a story for each of these items. He then resold those same items that he bought off eBay onto eBay again. And they went from a collective value of, say, $100 to having a collective value of something like $16,000. That was the difference. And nothing had changed about the actual function of the items that we're talking about. They just had a story attached to them. And so people thought this is valuable because it did things in people's minds. And really, when you're talking about subjective value theory, which is the society that we live in, everything is a subjective value, really. Um, You know, why is a Mercedes Benz more than a Toyota? When a Toyota is a better car, it doesn't break down as much. It's much easier to fix. Uh, it's, It's a superior car in every way. Why is the Mercedes Benz more expensive? It's because they're putting a story to the car. You know, they have those shots of it going up to a driveway with a luxurious manner and some handsome silver fox getting out and putting the keys to his butler as he walks in and kisses his milf wife, you know? Like there's a story to that car. Yeah. And there's a different story that comes to the Toyota. The Toyota is aimed at teachers. And so they know that they're aiming for that market. And so there's a different feel to it. Another example is the Subaru. Subaru Foresters, they did market research into who was buying that car. It turned out that it was lesbians. And all they did to their uh, – and doesn't it. it make sense? It's such a lesbian car. It really, As soon as you hear that, you're like, yeah, if they're going to buy a, a car, um, it's that. I've got a Liberty, so close. I don't know what a Liberty is. It's one of the Subaru – what does that I look don't like? Know. Bro, I know nothing about cars. You have to ask Will, but... Uh, it's not a lib car, is it? No, no, no. Mine's a Let station wagon. Subaru Liberty. I've got a station wagon because my... Well, my um, it was my parents' car, and then uh, they didn't give it to me for free, but they did give it to me for a pretty discounted price. Uh, so, yeah, I'm a uh, Dude, I'm a you know what? And I was just about to wagon. say that. <laughs> That's amazing because I was looking at that car and I was thinking... Indian accountant's car. Pretty close. <laughs> Sorry, a young man. Not a single man, but a, yeah, young man who lives by himself. That's what I meant. Who drives a, a, a station wagon. It's pretty hot. Yeah. Look, a lot of but space again- in the back. <laughs> yeah. yeah, dude, it's, it's, don't you think? Like, that looks to me like a white-collar Indian man in his 50s he would be driving that car. And that's pretty much who owned that car. It's amazing. Like, I really do think that, like, these, huh? Pretty much, yeah. You just think about the efficiency of the space you get with that extra boot, even though you don't, you very rarely need it. No, but it's a family car, so you would think, oh, okay, what if my kids get into ice skating? I'll need something for the bloody hockey puck. It's one of those cars. Um, but the point is that there is a story behind them and all that happened was, and because it was the 90s, they didn't come out and say they were lesbians, but it was two butch chicks, not butch, they were chicks with short hair and they took the Subaru Forester out, wearing their sunglasses, all Thelma and Louise, sat down in a field with, you know, strawberries and champagne and then they just clinked the glasses 
And there's a wink and the nod to the lesbian community that, yeah, this is your car. Skyrocketed wow. in sales, tripled in sales, tripled in sales in a month from that ad. Just telling people that's the story. That's the identity of that. That's the power of storytelling. So that's what it all is. Like an ad is just a 30 second story. And it's the same with history. I think that the reason that history is so attractive to go back to this guy's answer, especially when it comes to the things that you are saying, like when I started uh, looking into that period of the late Roman Republic, now I'm obsessed with it. I'm reading books about it. Uh, I've read many a book about that exact period, even though it's pretty much the same information. I'm just trying to scour through it to get a really good understanding of it. But um after studying politics, after studying the intricacies of it in my own time, the statistics, all of that, you go back in history and because it's laid out and, and it's, it's ancient, there's no sources to it, you're lucky if there's a couple of primary sources from the time, really all you're left with is a narrative. And so it gels in your mind in a different way because it's a story it's presented to you aesthetically that's the point of it as opposed to raw stats another reason why jokes work is because there's aesthetics to it it's people are attracted to attractive things and there's something like when you think about ancient rome it is sort of just the basis for a lot of stories to be told not Game of Thrones, but close to that, that period of marble columns, a lot of deceit and intrigue, togas, people walking around with hidden swords. There's, it, it has fairy tale elements to it. Mm. And that makes it very alluring, doesn't it? Adding a, uh, uh, a narrative, especially if it's not obvious, to whatever you're trying to sell would certainly increase the um, desirability of whatever those ideas are. So even, would you say, most yeah. uh, political movements and ideologies, they always have a story attached to them. It's very rarely, always. oh, hey, this is why, this is the economic value of voting this way. It's, hey, you're a certain person if you vote for us. And Trump really made that... This is another thing because marketing really, what's marketing? Know your audience, give them the story that they want. And there was a story even in his hat of make America great again. It was a small story. It was like, I think it's a, uh, I can't remember who wrote this story though. Uh, it was one of a genius. It was one of those, Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway wrote this story. It's so sad. Six words, but it's a story. It says everything you need to, well, it leaves some ambiguity there, but like six words, it's known as the shortest story of all time. It's in his collection of short stories. And the short, the six words are baby shoes for sale, no previous owner. Oh no. Yeah. No, no, yeah. Baby shoes for sale, never worn once. And so like, you just like, you know what happened in that story. It elicits an emotion you're quickly in and out. Beautiful. That's sort of what happened with the Make America Great Again story. Yeah, don't you reckon? Like, it's amazing. It's just that. Wow. Go on. Next story. That 
just hearing that that's that's really touching he was a Ugh. genius by all account i need to read more about him and i know he he was he he you know he had a penchant for being economical with his words if i've read that correctly about him but i i'm intrigued by him because he was it quite a man man he he would wake up at 5 a.m. and then he'd do his poetry and his writing for a couple of hours and then he'd go and hunt and, and drink beer and box. <laughs> I love really? anyone who's a very masculine man but also interested in in poetry. So i got to read more in Ernest Well, it's Hemingway. just purely Renaissance man stuff. Yeah. There's somebody that exercises all the elements of life. Yes. Yes. Definitely intrigued by that. I'm just. So, I don't know. Like I, I'm mm. just bringing it back to uh, uh, Will's interest in in cars and and designing race cars and saying that he's a rural tradie. He's to me very clearly a builder, a builder in many aspects of his life. So I'd imagine that's how he would be constructing his jokes. It wouldn't be based on a whim or a feeling. He'd he'd sit down and have a very clear structure to what he's trying to say or what he's trying to create. And then he'll build through that structure. So, Will, I, I, I think figuring out a way that um, that is familiar to you in your uh, construction of race cars, sort of co-opting that structure and using that to develop your jokes, I think will serve you well. Now, I can't say, you know, I wouldn't know how a race car is developed, so I can't say, you know, when you start with this with a race car, that's how you would start with this for a joke. But that's the that's where I'm getting at. That's where you need to, I think, your mind is already molded to uh, that style of design, and you just have to take that style and, boom, place it into comedy. Yes, but you're sort of at a massive advantage as a builder anyway. Builders, as I've said before, they're just goal-setting and and fulfilling machines. Neil's living proof of it. Um, yeah, you're right, though. You do just have to do it. You, you do have to, um, you have to work around what your mind does. But on top of that, I think you're kind of just a slave to it. You can't not. It'll happen naturally. So really, you should be listening to what Neil's saying about this because he would definitely know how a builder's mind works. But structure. It's all structure. You plan it's out something everything. that I'm infinitely jealous of. Hmm? Plan out everything and build um, on those. You know, you plan out each of the sections and then you build on each of those sections. And if you, pl if you need to plan any further... Well, you do that. You plan out the major sections first, then the subsections, and then you elaborate on each of those. You're um, you're really on the right path. I've got to say, just the what he wrote to us, and actually, in general, anyone that writes to us from this channel, I'm always. I know for a fact that they're going to be doing well in life. You can just tell. You know, they're not writing like, 
You two are a bunch of retards. Fuck yourselves. <laughs> well, Fucking go rabidos. It would, you know? it would be it would be quite audacious for them to pay the money only to read out that. I mean, that'd be, <laughs> it'd be funny. I hope someone does that. And actually, in. you know what? That person's probably going to do really well in life yeah. because that's avant-garde. Because they're going to live in our heads rent-free. So if you want to insult us, because yes. I know there's plenty of Twitter, according to Jordan, I'm not on Twitter, but according to Jordan, there's plenty of people on Twitter who uh, aren't exactly fans of this podcast. So by all means, everyone wins. If you, if you send in a question, goes to charity, gives us content, do it. Happily read it. Hey, chuck it. We'll, we'll, hey, we'll actually read it. There you go. It's funny how they can't be that strong with their well, hatred because if they know that the money they're sending is going to charity, then be hard pressed to just insult every part of us when we've just facilitated a you know good in the world through their hatred of us. So it, look, everyone wins. Man, <laughs> you know what? Uh, Callum from Michael West just sent me a Marcus Aurelius quote where he said, why would I concern myself with the opinion of those that don't like themselves? Ooh, I like that quote. Man, this has been, there's been some gems in this podcast. Great people, Oscar Wilde. It's a good one. Ernest Hemingway and, and Aurelius, you know, you're with... A good company there, but that's a. You know what that reminds me of? That just reminds me of the uh, dating advice that well, you'll dole out, but I'll dole out too. Which is that if you don't look, you'll get this on any fifteen-year-old girl's Instagram. If you don't love yourself, why would anyone want to love you? Mm. It's it's as simple as that. Mm. It's close, isn't it? It's very closely related. But it is it, it yeah, it, it someone who is someone who is low self-esteem that is going to ripple out into every area of their life every single area and i think just yeah in terms of like uh being loved that's a really obvious one but even the idea that your ideas are going to be bad that's so true like what we were talking about in the previous podcast if you have an insular worldview i'd actually bet money that you're low self-esteem as in you don't like yourself Anyway, we're getting away from the point. I mm. think that, and this this is something that I, uh, I I would love if anybody does write down any books that they think are great on the art of storytelling. I think that that would be extremely helpful. But I think that it is something that's even helpful in itself because you would just intuitively understand this. And as someone who's a complete novice on this, I think this is going to be my next endeavor in life of reading 50 books on the subject. But I think even thinking about your content 
as a story is going to change it and naturally make it more appealing. You will be getting people to get into that lull where they spend their entire 20 minutes on it, which is where's the beginning, where's the middle, where's the end. If you can do that, in fact, good, I've noticed this with good YouTube videos because there's always something that like, it starts with the good little teaser at the beginning, right? You know, that moment of action that they show in, in, in for five seconds in black and white of like, oh my God, it broke in half. And it just says like later. And then it starts and they're like, hey, what's up guys? This is cutie. Like, and, and it goes from there, right? Mm. That little beginning there, I can't remember the name of it, but it's like the prelude. A lot of good stories do that. They'll kind of start where the action is. You know that really classic overdone 80s Hollywood thing of, I don't know, some guy running down the street and then there's, I don't know, a bunch of like leather fetishists chasing after them and then it'll freeze frame and go, pause. You're probably wondering how I got here. <laughs> that is a really, it's it's done, isn't it? You've That's a cliche. Oh, yeah. But the cold opens. It's an element that works. Yeah, um, yeah. It's well, something that I've never thought about before as well. But, like, these, these are all techniques. And I think that everything, when it comes to humor, when it comes to making good content, what YouTube is searching is really got it right, which is that what you're really looking for is holding people's attention. That's what you've got to get good at. And storytelling holds people's attention because it puts you in a lull. When you're listening to a story, a good story, you're always just thinking, then what happened? Then what happened? Then what happened? You want that conclusion. A good story just builds it up so you think, how's he going to get out of that situation? Mm. It's like luring that. you in. Yeah. Well, and so, yeah, if you're writing, if you're doing something about like draw, building cars, there's one way of looking at it, which is I'm educating people. But if you do that, you'll be making content in a certain way. If you think I'm telling people a story, you will be making content in a much more alluring way. Absolutely. Yes. Mine it with a narrative and utilize these skills that you already have well i think uh we'll conclude this one here will thank you very much for the topic and you don't have to do that donation but that's incredible thank you um rare cancers australia what i'll what i'll do is i'll uh put it in the description as well so uh recommend anyone else to donate to this one and thank you very much, guys. Um, just a final reminder. I think this will be the last podcast that's going out on my Neil TV channel. So make sure you do subscribe to my main channel if you haven't already, youtube.com slash Neil K. And Jordan, thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your week. And thank you. We'll see you next time, guys. Oh, yep, neilcolhacker.com if you want to uh, send in a question or a topic. We'll see you next time. Exciting times ahead. See ya.